What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Welcome to Ambux 13, everyone. Hopefully you don't have trigatricophobia, which is the terrifying fear of 13, which doesn't make any fucking sense at all. Uh, this is going to be one of my favorites because this is one of my favorite books. This is a book that really changed my entire world paradigm, like everything I thought about the world shifted after I read this book. And it's in one of my favorite genres, just like Fifth Sacred Thing, which is utopian fiction. And Aldous Huxley was the real OG of this kind of category, in my opinion. There's been a lot of dystopian fiction, which is when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, like George Orwell, he did the famous 1984, and there's lots of different versions that can show you that. Fahrenheit 451, all of these different stories of dystopian fiction, but there are much fewer stories of utopian fiction, and that's where everything is going right. But usually in those cases, everything that's going right in a certain, typically a bubble of society, clashes with the dystopian reality, and that's what gives contrast. And that's the case in this book. And in this book, one of the people from Ordinary World, let's call it, his name is Will, and he's an intellectual, and he finds himself shipwrecked on the island of Pala, and Pala is that utopian bubble and he starts to learn about the culture and explore. And one of the elements of the culture is that they have a sacrament, a psychedelic sacrament called moksha. And moksha is a very interesting, I think it's an idea from Huxley, who is one of the great psychonauts of our time. Um, he wrote The Doors of Perception. He was really one of the leaders and thought leaders in understanding psychedelic medicine. And one of his favorite medicines was mescaline. Um, which is the active component of a lot of the cactus plants like Wachuma and San Pedro. Um, but I think he would take it extracted and isolated. Um, so when he was imagining moksha, it wasn't exactly mescaline, but it wasn't exactly anything else either, as far as I understand it from the research that I've done. But he imagines that this society has created a sacrament that is just perfect for advancing people from where they are to where they're going. And I think that's really one of the things that you find as a common theme from many of these psychedelic medicines is that it's a rite of passage, it's a ceremony, it's a ritual uh, that takes you from your ordinary life and your ordinary way of thinking into a radically different way of thinking. So I'm going to jump into a section where Will, the intellectual, has taken his first dose of moksha uh, guided by his sitter in this case, which is a woman named Susilla, very wise um, 
you know, member of this utopian society. And he's going to share his experience. And this is kind of jumping in halfway through and jumping in right when he's opening his eyes. His attention shifted from the geometrical constructions in brown agate to their pearly background. Its name, he knew, was Wall, but in experienced fact, it was a living process, a continuing series of transubstantiations from plaster and whitewash into the stuff of a supernatural body, into a godflesh that kept modulating, as he looked at it, from glory to glory. Out of what the word bubbles had tried to explain away as mere calcimine, some shaping spirit was evoking an endless succession of the most delicately discriminated hues, at once faint and intense, that emerged out of latency and went flushing across the god-body's divinely radiant skin. Wonderful, wonderful, and there must be other miracles, new worlds to conquer and be conquered by. He turned his head to the left where, appropriate words had bubbled up almost immediately, was the white, large, marble-topped table at which they had eaten their supper. And now, thick and fast, more bubbles began to rise. This breathing apocalypse called table might be thought of as a picture by some mystical cubist, some inspired Wang Gri with the soul of Trahern and a gift for painting miracles with conscious gems and the changing moods of water lily petals. Turning his head a little further to the left, he was startled by a blaze of jewelry. And what strange jewelry! Narrow slabs of emerald and topaz, of ruby and sapphire and lapis lazuli, blazing away row after row like so many bricks in a wall of the new Jerusalem. Then, at the end, not in the beginning, came the word. In the beginning were the jewels, the stained glass windows, the walls of paradise. It was only now, at long last, that the word bookcase presented itself for consideration. Will raised his eyes from the book jewels and found himself at the heart of a tropical landscape. Why? Where? Then he remembered that when, in another life, he first entered the room, he had noticed over the bookcase a large, bad watercolor. Between sand dunes and clumps of palms, a widening estuary receded towards the open sea, and above the horizon enormous mountains of cloud towered into a pale sky. Feeble came bubbling up from the shallows, the work, only too obviously, of a not very gifted amateur. But that was now beside the point, for the landscape had ceased to be a painting and was now the subject of the painting, a real river, a real sea, real sand glaring in the sunshine real trees against a real sky, real to the nth, real to the point of absoluteness. And this real river mingling with a real sea was his own being engulfed in God. God? Between question marks? inquired an ironical bubble. Or God? exclamation point. In a modernist, Pickwickian sense. Will shook his head. The answer was just plain 
God. The God one couldn't possibly believe in, but who was self-evidently the fact confronting him. And yet this river was still a river, this sea, the Indian Ocean, not something else in a fancy dress, unequivocally themselves, but at the same time, unequivocally God. Where are you now? Susila asked. Without turning his head in her direction, Will answered, In heaven, I suppose, and pointed at the landscape. In heaven still? When are you going to make a landing down here? Another bubble of memory came up from the silted shallows. Something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of something or other. But Wordsworth also talked about the still sad music of humanity. Luckily, said Will, there are no humans in this landscape. Not even any animals, she added with a little laugh. Only clouds and the most deceptively innocent-looking vegetables. That's why you'd better look at what's on the floor. Will dropped his eyes. The grain on the floorboards was a brown river, and the brown river was an eddying, ongoing diagram of the world's divine life. At the center of that diagram was his own right foot, bare under the straps of its sandal, and startlingly three-dimensional, like the marble foot revealed by a searchlight of some heroic statue. Boards, grain, foot. Through the glib explanatory words, the mystery stared back at him, impenetrable and yet paradoxically understood. Understood with that knowledgeless understanding to which, in spite of sensed objects and remembered names, he was still open. Suddenly, out of the tail of his eye, he caught a glimpse of quick, darting movement. Openness to bliss and understanding was also, he realized, an openness to terror, to total incomprehension. Like some alien creature lodged within his chest and struggling in anguish, his heart started to beat with a violence that made him tremble. In the hideous certainty that he was about to meet the essential horror, Will turned his head and looked. It's one of Tom Krishna's pet lizards, she said reassuringly. The light was as bright as ever, but the brightness had changed its sign. A glow of sheer evil radiated from every gray-green scale of the creature's back, from its obsidian eyes and the pulsing of its crimson throat, from the armored edges of its nostrils and its slit-like mouth. He turned away, in vain. The essential horror glared out of everything he looked at, those compositions by the mystical cubist, they had turned into intricate machines for doing nothing malevolently. That tropical landscape in which he had experienced the union of his own being with the being of God, it was now simultaneously the most nauseating of Victorian oleographs and the actuality of hell. On their shelves, the rows of book jewels beamed with a thousand watts of darkness visible. And how cheap these gems of the abyss had become, how indescribably vulgar. Where there had been gold and pearl and precious stones, there were only Christmas tree decorations. 
only the shallow glare of plastic and varnished tin. Everything still pulsed with life, but with the life of an infinitely sinister bargain basement. And that, the music now affirmed, that was what omnipotence was perpetually creating. A cosmic Woolworth stocked with mass-produced horrors. Horrors of vulgarity and horrors of pain, of cruelty and tastelessness, of imbecility and deliberate malice. So I selected that passage because it goes through many different you know, paths of understanding and also the contrast between when a psychedelic experience is going awesome and then when it's not going so awesome. And I think for many of us who have experience in that realm, we'll encounter that. And for Will, this is the first time experiencing that polarity where in a watercolor painting, he actually merged with an entity that he did not believe in and that entity he couldn't help but call God. And when he merged with that, I mean, obviously it kind of blew his mind. Um, and then on the other side, when he started to feel fear, everything, including all of those beautiful things which he witnessed, shifted their understanding in his mind. Like he didn't see anything the same way. So the bookcase where all the book covers looked like jewels, these strange rectangular jewels, that was just gross and vulgar and grotesque and it was like ugh, you know and and everything like from the floor to the table and everything just shifted his perspective because he was looking through the lens of fear instead of looking through the lens of his higher consciousness or his soul or whatever you want to call that part of us that starts to awaken uh oftentimes in a psychedelic journey i thought it was also interesting at the start that he mentioned how the wall was this infinitely changing thing. And he also was playing with the idea of the wordlessness of things, just actually observing things as they actually are rather than, you know, symbolizing them by the word itself. You know, there's an old saying that as soon as you teach a child the name of the bird is eagle, they will cease to see the eagle. They will just stop seeing that bird entirely and they will just symbolize it by the word eagle. And, and when we have a wall, we can symbolize the wall by the word wall. Or if we have a person, we can symbolize that person by their name and not actually see that person beyond the name and beyond our own biases and prejudices and the ways that words are always little bitty lies that are trying to create an approximation of what the thing actually is. But when you rip open the shutters that are kind of restricting the amount of information we're able to take in, which is what Aldous Huxley kind of posited was the way that psychedelics work was actually opening, you know, kind of the, the regulator, the filters on the amount of information that we're actually able to receive. Then we get to see the thing itself. And when we see the thing itself, it's jewels and magic and unbelievable. Even this table that I sit at every single day, you know, if I was tripping here in my office on some moksha, I would be just enthralled with uh, the way that the stones are laid out and the way that everything works. And this little basket of, of succulents and gems in there would be this, you know, unending circus of delight that I could explore. <clears throat> and I've been there before 
but doesn't mean that I remember it always either. And so I think that's one of the things about the, these medicine experiences is they can remind us of things that we'll all too easily forget. And then, of course, the lizard in this case symbolized that moment of fear for him. He was probably, you know, he's from England and he didn't experience the kind of lizards that you would have in the landscape of Pala. So when this lizard comes in and he sees its throat, as lizards do, you know, and has the throat that expands and he sees that and it's the essential horror, as he calls it. So that's just a, a symbol of his own fear. And then he starts to go from there into some of his own traumas and the own things that he's been afraid of as well, which is often where we go. And when we find ourselves in that place, that's when the necessity for the surrender and the acceptance of what is actually going on is so necessary. And that usually allows you to transmute when the fear is gone, transmute whatever that sensation is into something beautiful and see the lizard as God too. And see whatever essential horror is your essential horror as the thing that made you stronger or in some way you can alchemize that into something that was beautiful for your life. And that's how you actually, in a way, travel back in time and change your past, change history, or change the way that you look at things by just shifting your perspective on it. Because your perspective is the living record of what is going on in your own mind and in your own heart. <clears throat> the thing is already done, but we can shift ourselves because we have neuroplasticity. We can reimagine every time we re-remember. If we shift the perspective, we can reimagine and recolor the entirety of our past and and move forward as a new person. And I think that's the invitation, whether you're using medicine or not, is to shift your perspective, shift your emotions, and change your change the way you look at things so that that thing, that lizard of yours, doesn't have to be the essential horror. That could be something that you're grateful for or something that you find beautiful. And um, if we're able to do that, well, we're able to do pretty much anything. So that's just an excerpt from a, a beautiful novel. Um, and there's so many takeaways in this book. So if you haven't read it, I, I can't recommend it more. Um, it's Island by Aldous Huxley. And I would love to hear from you about it for any of you who've read it. And um, after reading this little piece, I realized that uh, I'm probably due for another reading myself. So maybe we'll all do this together. Love you guys. I'll see you next week.